Page 1295, Daniel chapter 2. Why are we studying the book of Daniel? Part of the reason, as you've been exploring a little bit last week and in life group studies this week, has to do with the fact that Daniel is kind of set up as an example to all of us as Christians. Because there he is, he's a, he's a, he's a faithful believer in God, in Yahweh. And he's taken from the city he loves, Jerusalem, which in the Bible represents the pinnacle of all our hopes for godly society, Zion, the heavenly city. Not that they ever attained it on earth, but that the future in the book of Revelation depicts a new Jerusalem coming down from heaven to earth, God rebuilding um, his city on, in the world. So it's a very, very symbolic city. He's taken from there, placed in Babylon, which is the very opposite in the Bible. It's the worst uh, of, of everything that man does in opposition to God in terms of man's pride and arrogance and his desire to attain power and wealth in defiance and shaking his fist at God. So there's a a believer taken and put into exile in a foreign land. And it's meant to be, in that sense, representative for, for where you're at. So you're a Christian, some of you, not all of you, but many of us are Christians. You're living in London, in a city, which in many ways would claim a title for being kind of the modern uh, equivalent to this city that Daniel was in. And so there's immediate relevance. We identify how do we as Christians live in a city like this? And so it, it does a couple of things for us, this book. One, it gives us a reason. It helps us explore the reason for being in Babylon because what you see when you're reading the book of Daniel is that God's hand was all over him guiding this whole thing. It wasn't that Daniel landed there by accident, but that God had an intention in it. So the question is, what's God's intention for you living in London? Is it just that you're here because you chose to come here, or because your degree was here, because your job was here, or because you like the culture here, or whatever? Or does God actually have a bigger plan and purpose in it? Does he want you here? Does he want you here to invest your life in this city in a deeper way than, um, than just to passively go along with the fact that you're here? What, why are you here? Is there a reason? What's God's purpose in it? And it also helps us to uncover something of how we're meant to live here, the way in which we engage with um, a city like London, just as Daniel had to make those choices in Babylon. So last week, one of the things has to do that we, we looked at was his purity. So many of us were so challenged by Daniel's stance that it says he resolved not to defile himself. Now, he's not, he's not a prude He's not a Pharisee, he's not a, a kind of a self-righteous prig who's difficult to be around. He's a very, in fact, he's a very, very winning guy, as you'll see. He's, he's, a, he's an amazing guy, he's compelling. But he's made certain decisions, and he draws a line, he says, I want to be pure. So a book like this helps us to understand why we're here, but also how we're meant to conduct ourselves living in the world as Christians with a calling from God upon our lives, as I believe all of us do. These are the kinds of things that it helps us to kind of understand. So we're going to read Daniel 2, verse 1 to 30. Fairly lengthy. So get your mind into the passage. Imagine it if you need to. But but pay attention. Follow along. And we'll start from the first verse. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. In Babylonian culture, to dream was full of ominous potential threats, bad omens, all these kinds of things. And it says his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. 
Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dream. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. And then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. And the king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The, king, the thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the king went out, and the wise men... Sorry, the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you for you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore, Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the interpretation to I'll show the king the interpretation. And then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. And the king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I've seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked, but there is a God in heaven 
who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this, and he who reveals mysteries made known to you what, it, what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. The question then that I'm trying to set up for you throughout this whole series is what posture we should have toward the city in which we live and indeed the wider world if we are followers of Christ, if we're Christians. And I think there are a couple of dangers that you can fall into and then a kind of a right way that, that Daniel shows for us. One of the dangers is that you know, the New Testament speaks to us as, as exiles just like, just like Daniel, sojourners and exiles, and that part of our posture towards the world we live in will be like, like an immigrant who never wants to integrate because their heart is really at home in their, in their homeland. You know how it is that you have people groups in London who live in pockets and never really thoroughly want to integrate because really what they love was their home, but they just wanted some of the benefits of living in the city. So they're trying to sort of suck the benefits, but without necessarily wanting to give back in, in the same way. I'm not, it's not a political comment, please. Don't take it in that way. Um, <laughs> I think that Christians can be exactly the same. And that you can live with a kind of a hostility towards the land you're in, or the city you're in, or the world that we're in. Because you think that that's what pure-minded Christian does. And Daniel's not like that. He, of all people, should have been hostile to the world that he was in. He was taken against his will. He was taken from his family at a young age. He was forced to learn things that he had no interest in. But he doesn't have a hostile stance to the king or to the city or to its systems and its people. That's one danger that we can fall into as Christians, to think that to be pure is to, is to be hostile. It's not. The other is that you can, you can do the opposite. You can so love the world that you're in that really there comes a point where it, could, it couldn't really be said of you that there's any distinction between you and the person who sits next to you at work or your neighbor who you live next to or whoever. That you are so in love with the city and the world and its customs and its desires and its aims and its ambitions that everything that London is has become true of you. And so if someone was to describe you, the first thing they say about you would not be, oh, he's a Christian, or she's a Christian. They'd probably just say, oh, you know, he's this, that, or the other. But whatever they say would, would be true of millions of other Londoners. Daniel somehow manages to walk that narrow road between the two things where he knows that he's there for purpose, that God put him in Babylon for a reason. So it doesn't need to be hostile to Babylon, but neither does he want to be so like Babylon that he's no use. He's God's man in the right place at the right time through whom God is working to do extraordinary things. This is one of the stories where we begin to see exactly why God has Daniel in Babylon. And it begins to offer you clues as to why God might have you here in London. I want us to focus on three things that go on in this story. 
I want us to, first of all, just sort of uncover the need, the problem, the insecurity of man. That's how I want to capture what I think the need is here. And then the two answers that God provides in terms of the messenger and the message. And we're going to begin with the need. We see it really at the very first verse. Just think about this. It says that Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Now, please keep in mind, Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful man in the world at the time. There is no one with more power than Nebuchadnezzar. I don't know who the modern equivalent is because I don't think that much power rests with any one person that we know of in the world right now, unless you're a conspiracy theorist and you think there's someone, some puppet master pulling the strings somewhere. But there's no one with that degree of power. There's usually a balance of power. But Nebuchadnezzar had unhindered power. He was a total uh, dictator. And yet, it seems that he has this vulnerability because he's had a dream and he's anxious about the dream. In fact, it's so, he's so anxious that Daniel, who wrote this portion of the book, is, he knows about it. Everyone knows about it. The king can't even sleep. He's so worried. And it shows you something right at the start about the condition of, of mankind, that it really doesn't matter how powerful you are, how much you accumulate, um, how secure your life looks on the outside, there are always vulnerabilities that are true to, uh, across the board among everybody we know. None of us can really be in control of our health, for example. We don't know when we're going to die. None of us, unless you have the certainty that comes from knowing Christ, you, you don't know what's beyond the grave. None of us are in control of the future. So even if you were the most powerful man in the world, you're not invulnerable. Nebuchadnezzar is feeling very insecure at this point. He's afraid, basically. He doesn't know what the dream means. He doesn't know what its relevance is to him. He fears the unknown. And it seems to me that it speaks in such a powerful way of the insecurity and the fear that so many people feel in the deepest part of their heart. That even if a person seems to have it all sewn up on the outside, you think about the most successful, good-looking, wealthy, confident person you know, whether at work or somewhere else, I think there's a real chance, it may not be the case, but there's a real chance that like, like this king, they have a dread, a secret dread in the heart. Many people live with a consistent feeling of fear because there are things that are way beyond our control. It doesn't matter how much control you have, you can't affect them. And so for Nebuchadnezzar, he really stands as a, a wonderful example of how even man in his pinnacle is in trouble. And so he starts grubbing around for answers. And it brings us to this, this, this point that no amount of learning can give you all the knowledge you need in life. Because what does he do? He starts questioning his wise men, his enchanters, his sorcerers. Now these are guys who, they're kind of the Gandalfs of the day. These guys are the guys you want to ask your questions to because they've read all of the kind of folklore and the, the lore of all the magicians and so on. They're also highly educated, highly intelligent men. They're not sort of kooky guys. These guys are smart, sharp men. And he, he gets them all in one room. But Nebuchadnezzar has 
some of his own brains, doesn't he? Because you see how the interchange happens. He says, you, I want you to, t- to interpret my dream, but you need to tell me what the dream is. Now he does this because he knows that if he tells them the dream, they can come up with anything and they'll pull the wool over his eyes. Convince him that their interpretation is a true one. So what does he do? He tests them. He really tests them. If you guys really have some kind of magical powers, then why don't you tell me what the dream is in the first place and then tell me its interpretation? It makes me think about, you know, I have a relative who's um, into astrology and um, deeply into astrology, written books on it and so on. And he said to uh, my brother um, in the summer, he said, um, we were talking about my brother's career path and so on. He said, what's your, what's your date of birth? What's your star sign? And, uh, you know, whether it was rude or not, I don't know. I came back and just said to him, why don't you tell him what his date of birth is based on what, <laughs> based on what he's doing and his personality and the things you know about him? You know, I think that's kind of the test that Nebuchadnezzar put before these guys. He said, listen, if, if you're so smart, if, if what you have is real knowledge, then maybe you can tell me what my dream is as well. And they're like, no, no one can do that. That's not how it works. He says, I'll kill you if you don't. (laughs) So the guy's got all power, and he's going to use it. Now, at this point, panic ensues, and they have no idea what to do. They argue with him, and they come to this very, very important conclusion in verse 11. They say, the thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Now, it seems to me that this sets up a parallel, a wonderful parallel for us when we think about the needs of mankind in the world in which we live. I've said to you, man is insecure because that whilst he can have many, many things and his life can be all sewn up, there are basic questions, fundamental questions that cause him dread in the dead of night when no one is there to reassure him. And the problem is that whilst you can accumulate all kinds of learning for yourself, there are questions which really only God can reveal. Answers, I should say, that only God can reveal. And it sets up wonderfully for us this distinction between reason, the rational mind, and revelation. We've lived in a world which for 100, 150 years, longer really, has been trying to pull those two things apart and set them up in opposition to one another as enemies. So right from the philosophers saying, I think, therefore I am, through to the scientists saying that we know 99.9% of all that there is to be known. One of the things that Dawkins apparently has said. Um, these guys are trying to set up the idea that what, to have reason, to have rationality is enough. In a sense, the magicians stand for that kind of way of thinking because they need the data to work with. They need the dream. Tell us the dream and then we will work with what we have and tell you what it means. And that's how the scientific mindset works, the rational mindset works, reason works in the world in which we live. It says, look, we can observe certain things around us, and once we put it all together, we can come up with this theory of why morality exists, or why love exists, or why we're here, and what we're meant to do, and how good society can be formed. But the problem is, as you should well know, that ultimately, the answers are deeply unsatisfying because They're only the best of what men can come up with and they're always changing their minds on everything. Right down to whether you can eat butter or not. You know, if if, if they can't make up their mind about whether we can eat butter, how can they make up their mind about what morality is? Do you know what I mean? I think people are very afraid to face the reality that we don't know that much. That even what we do know has its limitations. 
John Lennox, who's an Oxford mathematician and also a Christian apologist, he speaks and he's debated with atheists and so on. He wrote a book about Daniel. He says, look, we shouldn't set up reason, rationality against revelation. We should see them as working together. And he uses the example of Hercule Poirot. Has anyone watched Hercule Poirot as a child, maybe? The, um, <coughs> oh, yes, the investigator. Well, basically, let's say you're a detective like Hercule Poirot. You walk into a situation. You can start using your brain to assess all the facts as you observe them, as you see them in front of you. But at some point, you're going to hit a limitation because there's only so much you can know through observation. At that point, you need to start talking to people, gathering eyewitness testimonies. And how much they choose to give you or not is up to them. But that's revelation. Once you, when you've received revelation, it's not that then you throw your brain away. It's rather that you integrate revelation and reason together in a way that makes sense of the whole. That's the Christian mind. The Christian mind says that we, we love to use our brains to observe what's going on in the world and understand life. But we recognize that ultimately there are ideas that only God can tell us. So when we think about the insecurity of man, we know... No amount of power, wealth, success can make you truly secure. No amount of learning can give you all knowledge because ultimately you're going to hit a ceiling. Questions you can't answer. What will happen to you after you die? Where does good and bad, where do these things come from? What is love? Is it just a chemical reaction or is it something deeper, something more significant? As your heart testifies to you that it is. This is the need that we see all around us. People who cannot answer these questions. If you're a person who finds yourself in dread, I want you to pay attention to what I'm going to say. But if you're someone who who recognizes, I feel like I know something of the answers to these questions, then listen up also, because Daniel is there as an example to us of how we should engage with the world and the kinds of questions which people can't answer. It brings me to my second thing, second point, the need for messengers. We need to realize that We need to realize, first of all, that people do have this need. I know that we live in a day and age where, more than ever perhaps, people like to portray something about themselves that isn't necessarily true with the reality of the heart. But if you had the opportunity to dig around a little bit in the hearts of the people around you at work, your colleagues and so on, you find that nearly all of them share the same feelings of, of dread concerning the future, concerning death, concerning sickness uncertainty. Which means that if you're a Christian and you feel like, okay, maybe I have some of the, some hope to offer, just realizing the need is out there is the first thing you have to do because we find ourselves so often so reluctant to offer what we have. Why are we reluctant to speak? I think it's partly because of fear. Fear of man is such a controlling thing, isn't it? That we so worry about what people will think of us. We so worry of being portrayed as something that we, you know, we don't want to be seen as. And just yesterday, we were hanging out with some friends of ours who um, are not churchgoers, they're not Christians, and they know that 
what we do. We know that we're Christians. We know we love Jesus. But we never try and force it upon people. But there was this moment in this, this gathering yesterday afternoon when one of the guys showed up at the door. He rang the doorbell and uh, one of them opened. And as, he, as the door opened, the guy who was coming in said, Hello, I've come here to tell you about Jesus. And I don't know if he realized it was a joke in bad taste because I was sat right there next to the door and I immediately buried my head and thought, oh no, they hate, they hate it when people want to tell them about Jesus. It's just a joke. It's just a laughing matter, isn't it? And that's how we feel, isn't it, about the message that we have. We're afraid. Maybe we just lack compassion. That we don't look around and see people in their need. All we see is the ways in which we're competing with others or the ways in which we wish we were like them or we wish we, wish we could have their lifestyle or we just focus on ourselves. I think that part of the issue here is for us is to realize that like Nebuchadnezzar, people all around us are in desperate need of answers. They just don't know where to go. They are desperate. And here what we see in this chapter is that God puts a messenger in the right place at the right time. Why was Daniel in Babylon? Well, here's one of the reasons. God arranged for this. It was God's intent to put him there, as it were, at the king's side. Now, Daniel, as we discover, is a man uniquely fitted to the call, which is upon his life to be a mouthpiece to the king. I want to show you three qualities about him as a messenger. The first is his winsomeness. You see how over the page, when Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, or the chief executioner as it can be translated, comes to find Daniel because he's one of these wise men. He's, he's in that crowd. He's sentenced to death along with everyone else. It says in verse 14 that Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch. Now, I know that in the Bible you sometimes get guys who are more like a John the Baptist figure. Do you remember John the Baptist in the New Testament? He lives in the wilderness, he, he washes irregularly, he wears camel skin outfit and, and a leather belt, and he eats locusts and wild honey. So he's got rotten teeth, bad breath, and whenever he preaches, it's like fire coming out of his eyes. And he preaches, and like guys like King Herod, they, they hate him, because he, or they're kind of fascinated by him and hate him at the same time. Certainly his wife, his kind of um, adulterous partner, hates him. Because he's always preaching the truth. He's saying, this is wrong. You shouldn't live this way. You're, you're meant to honor God with your lives and worship him sincerely. So in the Bible, you get, you get guys like that who are the prophet types, who, who carry this burden and they speak with this kind of authority. And then you get guys like Daniel, who is just different. I mean, he, he has a different style. He's, he's winsome. Nobody dislikes Daniel, not at this stage. In fact, we already heard in chapter 1 that you know, Ashpenaz, who's got kind of responsibility for Daniel and his friends, it says that God gave him favor and tender love or compassion in the sight of Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch. They like him. He's just a really, really nice guy. And they want to help him in any way they can. So Daniel just exudes this, this warmth, this charisma, and it says he replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch. He's got this winsomeness. That's the first thing I want you to see about him. But he has it paired with a complementary quality that he has courage as well. He is no sort of lily-livered, weak guy. Because what does he do? He doesn't roll over. He says to Arioch, 
I'm going to go, I want to go see the king and I'm going to tell him the interpretation to his dream. This is the furious king who's just sentenced him to death. He says, I want to go and have an audience with him and I'm going to tell him the interpretation. Remember, Daniel doesn't even know what the dream is at this stage. So I don't know where he gets this idea from, but he's pretty confident. He's courageous. He knows that his job is there to be God's spokesperson and that he can potentially save their lives if he does it. So he's winsome, but he's also courageous. And the third quality about him is that he has faith. I say that because... For him to have made the claim, I'm going to go show the interpretation to the king, he must have had some kind of confidence in the God who he believed in, that God would reveal it to him, which is why they immediately set about asking God to help them out. This trio of qualities is what makes Daniel the perfect man in that place at that time. And I want to press it upon you that that is exactly what God wants of us in our places of influence, wherever we are. Two passages just to underline this for you. Flip over to Matthew chapter 10. It's page 1435. The context is that Jesus has just sent out 72 guys to go and be preachers. So really the theme is the same. Messengers, that God's providing messengers to the world. And then Jesus gives them a little bit more detail about how they ought to conduct themselves. And I want to pick it up from verse 16. He says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. There's the first characteristic. Winsomeness. Jesus is saying, I don't want you to go out and be really stupid and, and it just insult and offend everybody so that they hate you. And nor do I want you to go out and just sort of ingratiate yourself so that they, in a smarmy way, so that you're just accepted. He says, you know, you need to be wise, but you also need to be innocent. And somehow this is going to be a winning combination for you as my messengers, as my spokespeople. Winsomeness. Then courage. He goes on and says, beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the Gentiles. This has been happening to Christians all through the centuries. He said it then. It's been fulfilled millions of times. And then he says, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious. Courage. It seems to me that if you separate these two things out, if you're just a winsome person, then the danger is that you're just a people pleaser, right? All you care about is being liked. You need some courage. But if you're just a courageous person, then likelihood is you don't have many friends. And somehow the godly person, in terms of their, their conduct towards, towards others, combines these two qualities. They want to be winning because they love people. But they also want to be courageous because they love people. Because your job is to tell people the truth. And then the third element here says, Do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. Isn't Jesus, he's probably recollecting moments like this one in Daniel chapter 2. He says, The Holy Spirit is going to honor you. As you offer to be my mouthpiece, I'm going to give you the words to say. He says, It's not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. This is where faith comes in. You might feel like the weakest, most inadequate, most useless spokesperson for God that the, the world's ever seen. 
God says, if you put your confidence in me, I'm going to use you. I want to use you. It's a promise of Christ. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 3. You'll find it on page 1767. Again, the context is Peter telling Christians something about how they're meant to live in the world. And he says, from verse 13, he says, Now who is there to harm you? I'm going to deal with them in reverse this time. Who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what's good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. This is where faith comes in. He says, in terms of your engagement with the world, you need to believe in God. You need to believe that God's with you and that he will bless you. If you don't have that faith in the God who's, who's in charge of your destiny, who's put you in this place at this time, then you'll just, you'll just sort of wimp out of every opportunity. Have faith. Then he goes on. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. There's the courage, right? The Christian is a courageous person because they know that their calling before anything else is to be God's messenger wherever they are. But to do that, you have to be willing to speak. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But he says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. There's the winsomeness. Having a good conscience, he says, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Dear friends, I think that when you see these qualities coming together in a person, there you see someone who God is going to use mightily. That wonderful winsomeness, that courage, and that faith that God is going to speak through me. I can step out. This is what we see happening with Daniel. For Daniel, it produced a total conviction that he could do this. Not a self-confidence, but a certainty that he can stand in front of the most powerful man in the world and tell him the truth, which is what he does. And I just want to ask you a simple question on the end of this point. Are you willing to be God's messenger wherever he's put you? This is why you're in Babylon. don't know what you think your reason is for being here. Everything should come second to this. A lot of Christians love the city and they love London. They want to be in London for a while, but London is not a place where they want to be long term because the aim is to get out and have the dream life somewhere else. The bigger house, the bigger garden, the nice lifestyle. You know, I feel the tug myself, all of us do. But I somehow have this conviction, a conviction which stays with me and makes me want to make sacrifices. With all the challenges that it presents, I say, no, I think God's put me in London. I didn't really arrange it, it was God's will. And I'm sure many of you could say the same thing. You're here in the capital. You're here in Babylon. Why are you here? God wants you to be his messenger. Please don't view yourself as a passive recipient of the benefits of the city for a limited amount of time. See yourself as a missionary to this city, as one of God's messengers, with purpose. Brings me to my final point. 
I'll try and deal with this really quickly. Um, just the need for a message. I want you just to recall how, how unique this situation is. Nebuchadnezzar showing vulnerability. It also makes him very dangerous. He's like a cornered rat. He's scared. He's frightened of the future, so he's lashing out, killing everyone in the way that paranoid dictators tend to do. The limits of human knowledge have been exposed. He's asked all the best brains in the country, and none of them can help him out. So he feels even weaker than ever. And Daniel, therefore, his life is under threat. What does Daniel do? Two things. First, he starts praying. He tells his friends to seek mercy, verse 18, from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. It's their reflex action. The first thing he does is he gets on his knees and starts praying to God. It's right, isn't it? If you want to be of any use to God in the city, now or in the future, you must become a person of prayer. Because it's through prayer and through you seeking God's blessing upon your life that God's going to use you and no other way. But the second thing he does is interesting. It's, It's not explicit, but it's certainly implicit. He goes to sleep. Now, the reason why I underline that for you is because I think for God's people to sleep, they have to recognize that someone is taking care of things even when they're not. And Daniel, I mean, I I don't know how easy it would be to sleep on death row. I don't think it would be very easy. I think you'd be up most, you wouldn't be able to sleep. Your mind would be spinning. Daniel does sleep. Because he has a a peace and a confidence in God. And it speaks to me of this fact that ultimately he knows that only God can solve this problem. And that ought to be our conviction. That the world's deepest need, as we've been trying to describe it, is only met by what God can offer and nothing else. Which is where I want you to understand that the message, the revelation, is what meets the need of the world. And that what people need more than anything is the words that you carry. Daniel had to wait for the revelation. You have it in this book. And I'm speaking now, of course, of the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ as Savior. Look at how it comes. It comes to him by a dream, by revelation. And look at then how he prays a prayer of praise to God. He says from verse 20, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. And listen, how often he he praises God that he's a speaking God. He says, he gives wisdom to the wise. He gives wisdom to the wise, revelation. And knowledge to those who have understanding, revelation. He reveals deep and hidden things, revelation. He knows what's in the darkness and the light dwells with him. It's, It's his to reveal. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, revelation. And you've now made known to me what we've asked of you, revelation, and you've made known to us the king's matter. Brilliant. (laughs) Well done. I want to just underline that for you as I close, because, because of what I read to you at the very beginning. In the Bible, words are life. Words are life. Jesus says it to the crowd in John 6. He says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Things that you can't know unless I tell them to you. And now that I've told them to you, you, have, you can have life. 
It's, it's knowledge. It's knowledge from Christ imparted to people. They don't believe what he has to say. They abandon him. He turns to Peter. He asks Peter, do you and all the disciples, are you going to leave me too? Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Words are life in the Bible. So if you're a person who knows what this book has to say about the problem of the human heart and about God's solution to that need, you have something of inestimable worth. It's what Paul calls treasure in a jar of clay. It doesn't matter how weak you feel. In other words, you might feel like the most cracked, dirty, useless jar of clay ever created. If you know this message, you have treasure beyond anything of worth in this world. You're a a word carrier, a word bearer. You have life, and that life can be transmitted from you to others through the medium of you speaking, which is why Daniel is so thankful to God that God, whilst he can keep his secrets to himself, chooses to open up the truth to us impenetrable things that we could never know if God didn't speak. This is the wonder of the fact that we have a speaking God. And as Christians, we should never get over this. It's why we treasure the Bible. It's why we treasure the gospel. It's why Daniel can then go to Nebuchadnezzar and say, I think this is the keynote of the whole thing, verse 27 to 28. He says, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. In other words, you can exhaust every avenue of exploration and knowledge in the world. You could memorize Wikipedia, and you would still not know what I can tell you. He goes on, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. The great mystery of the heart is how I can be made right with God. How can I rid myself of the guilt I feel for the wrongs I've done? How can I be forgiven? How can I know God? How can I know that I will be with him in eternity and that when I die, my sins will not condemn me? How can I know the answers to these questions? Truth is, you could ask a thousand men, and like Daniel says here, they they can't show you the mystery. But he says, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He speaks. The fact that God has spoken does two things. If you're not a Christian, this is what's on offer. The first is it can give you perfect peace. To know Jesus is to know absolute certainty about why you're here, what you were made for, and how God loves you and expresses that love towards you. Jesus came to save you. He came to die on behalf of you. He came to offer his life in your place, offering himself as a punishment for your sins. And you can only know God through Christ, through knowing Jesus, through Asking him to come and inhabit your life and become your Lord. The fact that God speaks, the fact that God has shown us that, can give you perfect peace. But it can also give you boldness. 
really I'm speaking to the Christians at this point. If we're called to be spokespeople, if we're called to tell others, knowing that God has spoken should give you the most gritty, certain confidence and boldness to never hold back and never be embarrassed and never be afraid, but to keep on speaking. Amen.